<laughs> a history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Coming up for homage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects. This is a podcast from the University of Kent growing out of the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, which seeks to collect vast array of varied objects which relate to the art and craft of stand-up comedy. The idea of this podcast is that we will be picking one item from the archive per episode and using that object to actively interpret it in order to explain something about the nature of the history of British stand-up. I'm Ollie Double and I'm joined by my colleague Elspeth Miller and we are very much the Phil and Kirsty of comedy archiving. So Kirsty, what do we have? <laughs> what do we have? in this episode? This episode we have um, a flyer for Alternative Cabaret, okay. who were a collective of comedians and musicians who established themselves in 1979, late 70s, and the flyer itself is sort of a two-page flyer. Double-sided sheet Double-sided. of A4. Yep, A4, with lots of figures wearing gas masks, black and white. It's got sort of um, reviews of the different acts comprised Alternative Cabaret. And this, this flyer is from Andy Dillator's collection. So Andy Dillator was one member of Alternative Cabaret. Great. So Andy was one of the key figures in the early days of alternative comedy because I, I think the thing that's exciting for me about this is that there was a, a sea change in the history of British stand-up in 1979, starting in 1979, with the opening of the Comedy Store in May 79, within two weeks of Thatcher being elected. And it was very, very different from almost all stand-up that had happened before in Britain. Because before that point, you had stand-up grew out of uh, variety theatre, really, a music hall. And it sort of was an evolution, really, of the comic song into kind of comic speech. And it would be uh, a music hall comedian from sort of the late Victorian era would often just sing songs that would be comedic songs but they would be done directly to a boisterous live audience who would be eating and drinking and things like that often and then gradually what happened was that there would always be patter in there so they would speak sometimes within the song to the audience rather than just sing they would speak bits sometimes they would speak between the songs and then you got uh, uh, somebody like Dan Leno who was described as shifting the centre of gravity from song to patter in a, an around 1900, 1890s, very early years of the 20th century. So that was, that was one tradition. You also had uh, stand-up comedy in working men's clubs a little bit later, and that was very much the kind of my wife, my wife school of comedy. I mean, being very reductive, but these people would often, they would try and dress smart for the stage. It'd be sort of dicky bows and frilly shirts and velvet jackets and that kind of thing. And it was very much gags. Gags were kind of common property. And in both of those traditions, in some ways, it's very conservative. So, for example, women would be the butt of a lot of the jokes, the wife joke, the mother-in-law joke. In working men's club comedy, there'd be a lot of racist jokes. And then, in 1979, the comedy store opened. And it was built on the model of American comedy clubs, which had been around for a while, because they, they, the first American comedy club opened in the early 60s. And it was directly copied from the comedy store in L.A., which a guy called Peter Rosengard saw when he was on holiday in, in L.A. in the late 70s, I think 78 or something like that. And he just sort of went, I'll nick that idea. And indeed the name of the venue. I, I don't know what, what deal was worked out to make that a possibility. 
But when it first started, it was a kind of talent show, really, a gong show. Um, and it was compared by Alexi Sale. Uh, but it wasn't really an alternative comedy venue because you had all kinds of people there. You had sort of amateur wannabes. You had working men's club comics. Some quite big names came down to play the comedy store. Les Dawson, for example, played the comedy store. And, and various other people with differing degrees of success. But what happened was the comedy store became a kind of magnet for people who had already started thinking about maybe I could do stand-up, but from a different point of view. So Andy Delator, who you mentioned, had been in, in various left-wing theatre groups, uh, including the Belt and Braces Roadshow, and that's where he'd started doing stand-up because he'd started doing... Um, uh, uh, basically, the, the, it was a tour of you know a rock band. It was Rock Against Sexism or something. And he would do, he would compare the show and do bits of stand up. And we've got a photo of him doing that in the archive. Uh, and, and Belt Brace was a fiercely left wing company. Another figure that you had in there was Tony Allen, a very important figure. Arguably, you know, he was, used to be known as the godfather of alternative comedy, and you know, one of the, certainly one of the key people in setting up alternative cabaret. A very important man. Um, and uh, he'd been, you know, involved in a kind of anarchist squatter street theatre called Rough Theatre and, and some other things. And he knew some other kind of actors from this alternative theatre, sort of left-wing theatre. And they all, they, you know, these people, together with people from sort of Manchester student theatre scene like Rick Mail and Edmondson and things like that, started to gather around the comedy store. But there was only one venue for them to play. And it wasn't even their venue because there were all these other people on. So, in 1979, uh, they started a thing, I think Tony initiated it, called Alternative Cabaret, and they started running weekly ven uh, clubs in a venue called The Elgin on Labrook Grove. And the, the Elgin is a fascinating place, I think it's still there, I don't, I don't think it's called The Elgin anymore, I think it, it might be a Firkin pub or something. Um, but it's, it, 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 I mean, it had a long history, it, it had been, um, I think, Timothy Evans, you know, who was wrongfully hanged for murder one of Chris, one of the you know, serial killer Christie or something he, this, this poor guy with learning difficulties had drunk there regularly and things um, it, you know it's part of Labrick Grove it's this sort of bohemian scene and then in the 70s uh, sort of really important this the pre-punk scene the sort of pub rock scene of the pre-punk era with the, the squatting scene which again Tony Allen had been part of um, the Elgin had played host to a lot of important uh, pub rock gigs, so particularly the 101ers, Joe Strummer's band, uh, before he was in The Clash, had played the Elgin. And in fact, Joe Strummer was a friend of Tony Allen's, and Rough Theatre and the 101ers had performed together. Um, so the Elgin became a weekly club, and we have recordings from shows there, which is super exciting. Um, but this was their attempt to market themselves as a, as, a, as, a, as a thing. And it really, in a way, found the foundation of alternative cabaret was more important than the opening of the comedy store in one sense. And that was that they were actively seeking work. So they would go out to students' unions, pubs, art centres, even things like cinemas, and uh, say, we can do a night full of comedy for you, and you pay us this much... And so, you know, that was really, I would argue, the foundation of the modern comedy circuit. It set this idea that you could run a comedy club anywhere. And still, in London now, you'll get, you find lots of pub-based 
comedy clubs, and these people laid down the template for that. What, what does the flyer actually say? Um, on the front, there's lots of kind of little reviews. So you've got reviews from Time Out, a review of Alexis Self from Time Out, um, Observer, New Society. So these people are already getting coverage in yeah. mainstream press. And then on the back, you've got um, the current members of Alternative Cavalry. So this was quite early. Yeah. Um, and some of them don't appear later in the kind of the later records that we've got. So the very early performers were Jim Barkley, Andy De La Tour, Maggie Steed, Tony Allen, Alexi Sale, Peter Weir, and Roland Maltine. They were the com comedians. And then it was also mu musicians, Chisholm and Stevens, The Blue Lovers, Combo Passe, and Gas Mask and Hopkins. Um, and as we look through the rest of the material that Andy's given us, some of these performers kind of drop off um, and appear less, and new performers come in. So it did seem to have seemed to have a core group of performers, but there were some sort of revolving members as well, I think. Well, one name that's conspicuous by its absence there is Pauline Melville, mm -hmm. because Alternative Cabaret recorded an LP in 1981, and the four acts on it were Tony Allen, Jim Barclay, Andy Delator, and Pauline Melville. And she was quite important, actually, as one of the prominent early female performers. You know, Alternative comedy it's go back to why it was important it was very very different from the comedy that had gone before because it was it from all kind not just one perspective but lots of different left perspectives I mean Tony was an anarchist Andy Delatour was more of a traditional socialist Alexi Sale had come from this kind of working class Stalinist communist background right so there were all these different sort although he wasn't a Stalinist himself I should add so there were all these different perspectives, but they were all left-wing. And, and there was this idea that it should be non-sexist, non-racist comedy. Now that is staggering when you go and w watch footage of ordinary stand-up comedians of the pre-alternative mm. era, the, the, you know, the bit just before this happened. And in fact, there was a book published called Make Em Laugh uh, by Eric Midwinter in 1979. In 1979 it was published, so the very year these guys were setting up shop, and it said something like, it would be inconceivable, inconceivable to imagine a left-wing comedian because yeah. an audience wouldn't accept it. That's so different today in that there's hardly any right-wing comedians. So it seems right. to be completely... It's, complete, oh, but, um, it's completely changed. Mm. And I would argue that these people were the people who made that change. Although they, the, they were much more overtly political mm. than the comedians of today on the circuit, the average comedians. There's still a lot of political comedians, but you know, political comedians is quite a small category now, I would say, within the, the stand-up scene. But then, most, or at least many of them, were political. And even if they didn't do politics in their act, they were sympathetic to the left off stage. That was a sea change. It was a really important change. Now, uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is that if we look at the um, the front of the thing again, it's, it's, I would say this is a classic bit of post-punk graphic design. You've got a kind of um, a sort of italic serif font, all lowercase alternative cabaret in the top box. It's quite a fat font. It's the sort of thing you can imagine being bought in letter set. Um, and then the picture of the people in gas masks is it's, it's uh, monochrome, so it's just black on white. There's no grey, there's no other colours. And that sort of apocalyptic kind of nuclear war kind of nuclear paranoia kind of imagery, you could find that, I think, in a lot of 
record sleeve designs of the early independent uh, label scene. And I think this was, in a way, the, the, the independent label scene of stand-up comedy. Uh, and and, and it's a, I think it's a really... I think it looked great on a T-shirt. I think it's a great bit of post-punk design. But we did an event uh, in the Edinburgh Fringe in, in um, the summer of 2015, and it was promoted by Lakin McCarthy, um, and uh, it was called Talking Comedy, and it, it took place in the uh, assembly rooms in Edinburgh. And, and the format was that if, over a period of six days, I would interview each, each show a different comedian. And one of the comedians I interviewed was Alexi Sale. When I was interviewing Alexi, uh, I showed a, a scan of this leaflet, and we projected it at the back of the stage. And here's what he had to say. Edit. If you go back, go back to the, um, if you go back to the first slide, because I, I actually, hold on, can you go back? Oh yeah, oh sorry, I'll have to go into it again, there we go. If you, can, you can't focus it because that's, I actually designed this poster as well, and that's, those are the letters A, F, the... Oh that's amazing! That's my signature, <laughs> So yeah, that, um, that is uh, that is my design, and uh, all those boxes are specifically too small to get the comedian's name names <laughs> off. <laughs> so you never really. And that box at the bottom was supposed to be, you know, what the venue was. Um, and Tony Silkscreen printed it because you know everybody, everybody who lived in West London in the seventies could silkscreen print. <laughs> you got books about how to do DIY printing. And yeah, it's yeah. Completely different from now when it's all online. Yeah, yeah. No, he just. He just uh, this is what this is what presumably Tony wrote this. Alternative Cabaret. This is Tony Allen, who was one of the sort of founder members of Alternative Cabaret. Alternative Cabaret is a collective of a dozen or so comedians and musicians. Alternative Cabaret show consists of up to two hours of radical, raunchy humour and music ranging through folk, blues, and jazz, with three comedians and two musical acts, which. Um, yeah, I don't think that perhaps captures the excitement. Not really. No. And the the, uh, the names of the people there. Some of these are people you might you will have heard of. Obviously, there's Alexi there, Tony Allen, who I just mentioned, uh, Andy Delatour, who is the brother of Francis Delatour, mm-hmm. and uh, used to work with left wing theatre companies like Seven Eighty Four. Maggie Steed, who later played Richard Griffith's wife in Pie in the Sky. <laughs> He was a restaurateur, but he solved crimes. <laughs> In like Wiltshire or something. <laughs> That's what the different fates of people on that bill. One of the things that was delightful about that was that I just hadn't noticed that just down here it says AS 1979, Alexi Sale 79. I had no idea that he'd designed it. Uh, but I mean, I know that he worked as a graphic artist for a while before he started... Um, performing and uh, that that was really cool to hear I also another thing couple of things I like about that clip first of all I love the fact that a piece of graphic design gets applause <laughs> from the audience I think that's really touching normally if you design a poster you will never hear people applaud it it's so different to kind of the poster that you get today in a way that kind of that homemade we've got other examples in the archive of like Nick Talk Shack's kind of homemade home drawn work and it's I don't know it's just quite evocative isn't it that sort of I think that's that a really yeah I think that's a really good point um, that, that if you look at 
modern tour posters of comedians, uh, or indeed the, the DVD covers, they're very slick and very formulaic. So there'll be quite a nice font. It'll be a very professionally designed thing. There'll be a very professionally taken photo of the comedian in a suit, normally smiling, you know, and it'll be called something like live and hilarious. <laughs> and then you get people who are a bit more kind of creative, like Ross Noble, it'll be a bit more kind of conceptual. It's more like an album sleeve or something like that, but very professionally done. And uh, what, what typifies the graphic design of uh, the early alternative comedy scene, and by early, I would take this right through the 90s, is that it is home homemade. It's home drawn or you know, done with cut and paste, and it's done on a photocopy or offset litho printed. The cheapest way of producing things is to make it yourself mm. and to go to a local printer or just go to your library and put them through uh, the photocopier. It's a very much a kind of DIY ethos, and I think you can map the change from being a much more sort of hand to mouth DIY scene through to the today when it's a huge business and literally the, the, the highest paid comedians can earn tens of millions of pounds of, tens of millions of pounds a year. Um, so you're absolutely right, it's very different from the modern style of graphic design. It was funny as well that he made fun of the fact that he'd made the boxes too small <laughs> to put the names in because the, the print in those boxes is teeny. Mm. So teeny in fact, they neglected to, to notice that Alexi is spelt wrong. Oh, yes. The, the, they've missed the final E before the for the I at the end. And I think that happens more, yeah, it's more than once that that's uh, been missed off. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it was really great for me to find out that he'd designed this, this uh, image because I'd seen this in books you know, from, from years ago kind of thing. And so to see the actual thing in the, in the flesh. And interesting as well that Tony had screen printed them because we, Tony Allen lent us uh, a copy of this very early days of the archive. He, he didn't want to part with it, so he lent us it and we just scanned it. And the one he gave, or lent us rather, was a slightly darker finish. This one's quite sort of muddy around the edges where the ink hasn't worked quite as well on the paper. But I think that itself is quite interesting. Because it, it sort of it speaks to the kind of homemade quality of it. Uh, the, the last thing I would say about this um, that, that's interesting to me is that when I was doing my PhD, I did a PhD about the history of British stand-up, and I was working on that from kind of 1987 through to 91. And at that time, believe it or not, it was really hard to get hold of any material relating to stand-up. Well, you know, now you could go to any garage, any service station shop, and you could see a whole array of stand-up DVDs. Back then, you'd have to search out a second-hand record shop, and you'd have to riffle through the vinyl, and it would always be the same things. There would be, you know, a copy of loads of Billy Connolly LPs. You'd get some American comedy LPs. You'd get sort of like blaster baits, uh, and then that, and you might get an old kind of. Um, Goons LP or something and that'd be it so finding good material you'd have to sort of VHS it off the TV you know video it off the, off the TV and, and actually finding artifacts like this would have been impossible so to have this and to be able to hold it in my hand and look at the information that it contains is really special actually I've just noticed one last thing which you should probably comment on before we leave this um, on the front, as well as the different descriptions of the, the people that they had in Alternative Cabaret, um, there's a, a joke. This is from Tony Allen's act. 
and I'll read it out. It says, this Pakistani took my mother-in-law to an Irish restaurant and says to the West Indian waiter, there's a homosexual in my soup. And the waiter says, what do you expect for 40p? A Jewish squatter. Now we've got all that out of the way, we can get on with it. Of course, the point of that is he's satirising the, the, the tradition of comedy that came just before. He's sending up the cheap prejudice by exaggerating it. And that joke in itself tells you that there's something important happening to change the history of British comedy. And that was what that represents, a complete change in the way that people approached the task of stand-up that, and, the, and the after effects of it are still with us today. Right, before we go, uh, we'd like to tell you about various ways you can get involved. Get involved! And there are various ways that you can get involved. Uh, you can go to the catalogue. Um, full links will be on our blog and social media. Um, find an object or a record that you think is interesting and nominate it. And we'll talk about it in a future episode. Uh, the chocolate chip version of that is that you can actually arrange to come into the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. You can look at material for yourself and then record a short piece about one of the objects you see. You can give us the audio and we will feature that in a future episode. And lastly, uh, you can record your own version of our theme tune and if we like it, we may use it in a future episode. <laughs> I like the conditional there. <laughs> right, that's all for today. Uh, we'll see you for the next podcast whenever we get around to recording it. A History of Comedy and Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.